From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Malignant mesothelioma, cancer of the lining of the lungs, is one of the most deadly cancers with survival rates in the single digits. Now the researchers are using viruses to treat mesothelioma with the hope of improving the odds. We're also looking at a lot of novel new treatments, one of which is actually the measles virus that we are actually delivering directly into the vicinity of the tumor. Also on the program, the little pink pill. It's a new drug designed to treat women with hypoactive sexual desire disorder. We'll learn more about HSDD and when the new drug might be available. Also, detecting and preventing malnutrition in older adults. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Malignant mesothelioma, cancer of the lining of the lungs, abdomen, and some other internal organs. It's pretty rare. According to the American Cancer Society, about 3,000 new cases are reported every year in the United States. But despite it being uncommon, malignant mesothelioma is often deadly. The five-year survival rate is between 5 and 10%, meaning only that only 5 or 10 out of 100 people survive this disease for five years or longer. Researchers at Mayo Clinic and elsewhere are working to change those survival statistics. They're investigating a number of treatments, including using viruses to help them fight the cancer. Here to talk about mesothelioma and some of the new developments in treatment are Dr. Dennis Weigel and Dr. Tobias Peikert. Dr. Weigel is the thoracic surgeon and the chair of thoracic surgery department at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Tobias Peikert is a specialist in pulmonary and critical care medicine here at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Weigel, Dr. Pikert, welcome to the program. Nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us about this disease, mesothelioma. It seems to me like the, the lay public, the last time they may have heard about this disease is when that good-looking guy on the motorcycle with the short blonde hair died of mesothelioma. And, well, you know his name. <laughs> yes, that was Steve McQueen. We is that came right? Up with that. <laughs> that yeah. is right. Yes, that's right. That is correct. <laughs> so how is this uh, condition different than other kinds of, of lung cancer? And I know it can involve other organs, but most common in the lung, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, it's a disease, really of the lining surfaces of the lung and the lining of the chest wall. You can also get it in the lining of the abdominal cavity also, but it's a, it's a very different form of cancer in terms of how it's initiated, where it starts, where it goes to, um, which is part of the reason why it's a difficult one to treat. Dr. Weigel, what I think of is not Steve McQueen, but I think of um, TV commercials that ask, were you exposed to asbestos? Because mm-hmm. if you were, you probably have mesothelioma. What is the asbestos connection and how are they correlated? Yeah, it's unfortunately a very strong connection. Although not everybody who has asbestos exposure gets mesothelioma, we think that is one of the most important originators of the disease. And certainly the large majority of people who end up with mesothelioma have a history at some point in their lifetime of significant uh, asbestos exposure. The majority of patients have been exposed to asbestos. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Other causes, Dr. Pikert? Uh, there are other causes for mesothelioma. Prior radiation therapy, especially for breast cancer and lymphomas that occur at a young age, can certainly lead to malignant pleural mesothelioma. There's also other fibrous minerals that occur in the environment. One particular fibrous mineral, Arionite, actually has raised some interest recently, uh, it being discovered in North Dakota in some of the uh, rock formations that were actually used for gravel roads. And so there was certainly a group of patients that were actually, or a group of individuals, 
individuals that may have been exposed in, in that setting that are potentially at risk for mesothelioma in the future. Dr. Piker, what are the signs and symptoms of a mesothelioma with patients? The most common signs and symptoms are actually uh, later in the, in the stage of the disease when pleural fluid develops and constricts the uh, capacity of the patient to breathe, so shortness of breath and uh, chest pain as, as well as uh, I guess the inability to breathe are kind of the most important symptoms. So when you say pleural fluid, you're talking about fluid that accumulates around the lung that compresses the lung, and that's the reason that it makes it difficult to breathe? You've got less lung tissue. Correct. That's correct. The lung, uh, the chest cavity is kind of a... uh, a defined volume, and if you have fluid that actually takes up space in the pleural space, which is typically almost kind of a virtual space that's that's very small, there's only 10 cc's of fluid in it, if you get liters of fluid in there, then obviously it becomes very hard for the lung to expand and for the patient to breathe. And the fluid comes because of the, uh, the irritation of the lining caused by the cancer? The fluid is directly caused by the cancer. We think that's actually involving the lining of the chest wall and the inside and the outer surface of the lung, the mesocelial layer. So the number one symptom, shortness of breath. The number one symptom is shortness of breath and chest discomfort, chest pain uh, related to the pleural involvement by the mesoseoma. I understand, though, that usually when you're diagnosed, it's quite advanced. Is that right? Is it easy to catch it early? That's correct. It's actually not very well caught early. There's no screening test, unfortunately, for mesoseoma at this point in time. So most of these patients are are diagnosed when they develop symptoms, which is typically at a late stage of the disease. Dr. Weigel, in the past, up to this point, how have patients been treated? Um, Unfortunately, this disease historically is one that we probably haven't done a great job with from a treatment standpoint. There is certainly a role for many different forms of treatment and and the most modern aggressive approaches, including uh, chemotherapy, including surgical approaches to remove uh, the disease, which may involve not only removing the lining of the lung, but even the whole lung itself, in addition to lining of the heart and diaphragm and other structures in the chest. And then also, interestingly, using a number of different modern radiation approaches in order to try and deal with disease. I think the the, the major dilemma for us is how do we bring all of these approaches together to really get the best outcomes. It's historically been a disease where the outcomes are, are not good, to be blunt. Um, and although overall people don't do very well, um, if you don't do anything, you will not be cured. And we know there are cures from some of the more aggressive multidisciplinary approaches. It's just very difficult for us to pick out which patients are really the ones that are going to benefit most from the treatment approaches that we have to offer. So uh, let's go back to, to getting making the diagnosis. So once someone is short of breath and you do a chest x-ray, is this a, a disease that you can usually detect on the chest x-ray? Obviously, you can see fluid, but can you see the, the cancer itself? You cannot see the cancer itself typically on the chest x-ray. Typically, seeing the cancer requires more advanced uh, imaging such as CT scans uh, to actually see the sickening of the pleural space. Uh, in addition uh, to that, we typically sample the pleural fluid and actually analyze the pleural fluid and try to detect abnormal cells within the pleural fluid. Uh, all of these things are not diagnostic of malignant pleural which uh, is a hard disease to diagnose and uh, really de- requires a tissue biopsy of some sort, which can be obtained in different ways. Uh, but often you can see the malignant cells in this fluid, but maybe to make the definitive diagnosis, you have to get a sample of the tumor itself. 
Correct. Typically, you can see cells that are suspicious in the fluid, but to make a diagnosis that actually is called mesothelioma, you actually need a tissue biopsy. Dr. Tobias Peikert is a specialist in chest medicine, a pulmonologist. Dr. Dennis Weigel, thoracic surgeon, both from Mayo Clinic. We're talking about mesothelioma. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on mesothelioma and the team approach to diagnosis and treatment. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic of Radio. We're with thoracic surgeon Dr. Dennis Weigel and chest specialist Dr. Tobias Pikert. Our topic, mesothelioma, a disease that's rare, but uh, at least to this point in time has had a poor prognosis. A five-year survival of only 5 to 10% of the population. We've talked about the symptoms, mainly shortness of breath of mesothelioma, and about how to make the diagnosis. And once we've done that, once we have the diagnosis, what comes next, Dr. Pikert? Once we have the diagnosis, I think the next step is to stage the disease and kind of define how far advanced uh, the disease is. And uh, for that purpose, we actually now a lot of change has changed over the last few years where we have much better tools in terms of imaging technology, CT scans, PET CT scans, and modern bronchoscopy techniques to actually try to uh, stage these people prior to taking them, for instance, to surgery. The challenge is really to select the patients that would actually benefit from a multimodality therapy, which are not everybody with mesothelioma. It's a small subpopulation of patients with mesothelioma with early-stage disease that have a good uh, patient characteristics in terms of comorbidities and, and so forth. These other, are, other illnesses. Other illnesses. That, these would actually be the, the ideal patients to proceed uh, mm-hmm. with a multimodality approach. What's the average age of the patient? The average age is probably uh, in the 60s to 70s. Uh, we've seen patients where it occurs as early as in their early 40s. Uh, one of the interesting facts about mesothelioma is we talked about the asbestos relationship. Mm-hmm. Typically, exposure to asbestos actually precedes the development of mesothelioma by uh, 30 to 40 years. So you talked about multimodality therapy, meaning you have several different ways to treat these uh, uh, patients. Obviously, surgery is one of them. If mm-hmm. you can perform surgery, is that the preferred method of treatment, Dr. Weigel? It's certainly one key part of, of our most aggressive and modern treatment algorithms, but I think there's pretty wide acknowledgement that just surgery alone is not enough to cure the disease. Even if it hasn't spread beyond the lung? Mm-hmm. So what is it that has changed? What is it that is um, making the future just a little bit brighter for people who've been diagnosed with mesothelioma? So I think at this point in time, what we've done at Mayo Clinic, we've established a um, mesothelioma interest group, and we are taking a multimodality, uh, multidisciplinary approach to the modal- multimodality treatment uh, of this disease, meaning that we really discuss these cases amongst different subspecialists. So we have a pulmonary physician sit around the table together with a thoracic surgeon, a medical oncologist, and a radiation oncologist, and our pathologist as well as well as imaging experts, and we are trying to really practice individualized medicine where we are trying to select the patients that would benefit from a modern multimodality approach, which typically includes, just was already alluded to, uh, surgery in conjunction with some sort of chemotherapy and radiation. And there's now some new schedules of and new techniques of delivering these treatments in a less toxic manner uh, with fewer side effects as compared to the past. 
Is this so difficult to treat and have such a poor prognosis because most of the time it has already spread beyond the lung by the time the diagnosis is made? It's it's actually, that's an interesting question. For the most part, mesothelioma is actually more of a localized disease. Uh, so it, it originates in the pleural cavity and it spreads locally to the adjacent structures, specifically the lung, the chest wall, the diaphragm, which is one of the major breathing muscles. And via that route, it can also extend into the abdomen. Distant metastases are relatively rare early in the disease. They occur more at later stages. At, but it is very hard to, let's say, if we look at one modality alone, surgery alone, to remove uh, all the tumor with one modality. So it uh, typically requires multiple treatment approaches being applied to the same patient. Because of its location and extent, it may be difficult to get it out surgically. Is that the problem, Dr. Weigel? Yeah, to get it out completely such that you've really removed every tumor cell with cure from surgery alone. That is a very difficult thing to do for this disease. Last year on our program, Dr. Russell came along with his patient and talked about using the measles vaccine to help cure her of her multiple myeloma. And now that's something that you're doing with uh, mesothelioma. That's right. So in addition to these more standard, more established therapies that we are trying to apply in new algorithms, we're also looking at a lot of novel new treatments, one of which is actually the measles virus that we are actually delivering directly into the vicinity of the tumor, meaning that we are actually putting a small catheter uh, between the ribs into the pleural cavity and actually delivering large uh, doses of the Mises virus via that route. Uh, and uh, the hope is that, of course, that we get responses similar to the response that you guys have, or that, that was described by Dr. Russell in, in the previous uh, session where we got a complete response in a patient with multiple myeloma. We are hoping to see similar success in uh, mesothelioma as well. With the team approach and all the modalities you now have available, has the prognosis for patients with mesothelioma improved some? At this point, uh, if you look at the data that's published, the prognosis has been relatively stable, but there's a lot of very exciting things that are going on at Mayo Clinic as well as around the country that I'm certainly very hopeful that it will improve in the near future here. We've seen some interesting responses. Part of the problem I'm sure you have is that there's a limited number of patients to do clinical trials on. So it's difficult to know what might work because of the limited population with this condition. Since there has been less asbestos used in construction and the buildings that used to have asbestos, it's, it seems like they're always cleaning out a building with asbestos in it. Has the number of cases of mesothelioma gone down? Interestingly, if you look at the epidemiology, it's been predicted that it were to go down, at least in the U.S. or the Western European countries. Uh, it hasn't really done so in, in practical terms. So the number of cases is still very similar, and we've plateaued in, in this part of the world. The reason may be other exposures that people are facing as well as remodeling and, and exposures that, that are actually still occurring in the setting of uh, asbestos that was used uh, in the past. Certainly at a worldwide level, uh, mesothelioma will continue to be a problem for many, many years since asbestos is used at a worldwide scale still in many, many countries. What other things are being done here at Mayo Clinic that you want everyone to know about? 
I think the what we really want people to know about is that we are taking this uh, multi-specialty uh, approach uh, to this disease. We've also established a uh, very uh, advanced uh, tumor board at our uh, in our thoracic oncology group, where we actually discuss all these cases of malignant pleural mesothelioma in a multidisciplinary conference that we have every week. That's actually broadcast to a number of sites, and so. By having this type of an approach, I think that uh, it it offers a nice opportunity to really accomplish our goal of individualized uh, treatment for these patients and giving them the opportunity to either pursue standard of care in conjunction with symptom management versus actually uh, if they are candidates for this, enroll into multi-modality treatment protocols as well as participate in research, which we very much appreciate the help of all of our patients of uh, helping us to advance science in terms of participating in research. Do you have people from across the country that reach out to Mayo Clinic to participate in research? Actually, we have a lot of them. Uh, I can tell just as examples for the measles virus study, we've actually had people reach out from not only across the country but around the world to participate in the measles virus study. And I know there is a support group for patients who have mesothelioma. What's the, the site where they could go to for that? There's actually uh, the uh, Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, or MARF, uh, which is uh, a very uh, active support group that, that's uh, run by mesothelioma patients and their families primarily. And uh, the website that patients get, can get more information for this would be curemeso, as one word, dot org. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Dennis Weigel, Dr. Tobias Pikert, for the update on mesothelioma. Appreciate it. And the important thing to remember about all of this is you come to the Mayo Clinic, you don't just get a doctor, you don't just get a nurse, you get a team. That's right. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll have the latest on the little pink pill, the new medication designed to treat hypoactive sexual desire disorder in women. Dr. Stephanie Fabian, director of the Mayo Clinic Women's Health Clinic, is our guest. And we'll hear about how to detect and prevent malnutrition in older adults. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Later on in the hour, we'll learn why it's especially important to carefully swallow some medications. Speaking of medications, we'll also learn about the little pink pill on its quest for FDA approval. And what's old is new again with Dr. Takahashi. We'll talk about home health care visits. Coming up. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with a Mayo Clinic News Network headline. It is definitely tick season. They're in the grass, woods, and on your pets. Ticks carry diseases such as Lyme disease, and if one embeds into your skin, you may be prescribed an antibiotic like doxycycline. But be sure to pay attention to directions on the bottle, because if any pill or tablet gets stuck on the way down, you're at risk of what's called pill-induced esophagitis. Here's Dr. Karthik Ravi. Typically, patients are going to complain of chest pain. 
the chest pain is going to be pretty quick in onset. It's going to happen within a couple of hours to days of taking the tablet. And it's going to be pretty severe. It can radiate to the back. It's typically worse when they swallow. Um, and they sometimes will even notice that it may be more difficult to swallow. Here's what happens. A person swallows a pill and it gets hung up in the esophagus. The contents of the pill leak out and damage nearby tissue, causing an ulcer. Meds that can cause this are antibiotics, biphosphonates, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and some supplements. And that's today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, it has created quite a stir in recent days. There is a new medication working its way through the FDA review process that, if approved, could help women with HSDD. You know what that is? I actually do. I'm very excited. HSDD, it stands for, tell me. Hypoactive Sexual Desire Disorder, or... Low, Low sex, sex drive. drive, yes. Yeah. The stir has been about whether the drug called... Flabanserin. Yeah, I knew that you knew how to say that. <laughs> It'll be for women what drugs like Viagra and Cialis have become for men. Here to talk about HSDD and the new drug to treat it is Dr. Stephanie Fabian. Dr. Fabian is an internal medicine specialist and director of the Women's Health Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Fabian. Nice to have you with us. Thanks so much, guys. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> so why hasn't this been approved before? Well, I think for several reasons. The FDA had concerns about safety and efficacy when it came up for approval in 2010 and 2013. And since then, some additional studies have been done and some additional questions have been answered about the drug. Um, also, it, w- it went from one drug company to another one, and it's now under the hands in the hands of Sprout Pharmaceuticals. So Sprout has answered some additional questions, and they've now brought the drug up again for uh, consideration by the FDA. It's, it works completely differently than the uh, Viagra and Cialis for men, right? Because that is fairly uh, clear how that works. It increases blood flow to the penis, and, and uh, then for impotent men, it solves the problem. But this drug works completely. It's completely different, isn't it? You're exactly right. So it's a little bit inaccurate to compare it to a female Viagra or Cialis. It's a little bit unfair because, you know, this isn't really about blood flow for women. This is about low sexual desire. And even for men, Viagra and Cialis does absolutely nothing for sexual desire. It helps with arousal. Um, So this is not an arousal drug for women. This is a drug for low sexual desire to help with that. We know that about 40% of U.S. women experience some sort of sexual dysfunction, and the most common type is hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So this is the most common complaint we see in our clinic every day. Really? There is a, there is, as I've been studying this though, to get ready to talk to you, there is a part of medicine though that think that the whole thing is completely made up by the company that wants to sell this drug, that there is no such thing as a, as low sex drive. That's kind of crazy because I don't know where the 3,000 patients that yeah. we see every year are coming from. This is absolutely a very real and very distressing problem. And many times there are other reasons for it than just out of the blue. So, f- When we talk about sexual desire in women, it's impacted by so many different things. We use the biopsychosocial model to talk about this with our patients. So what that means is we look at the biological factors, what what hormones are involved. Have they been through menopause? Are they experiencing vaginal dryness and pain? Have they had surgeries that might impact their sexual functioning? The psychological and emotional part, do they have any depression or anxiety problems? Do they have any body image issues? Is there a history of sexual abuse? Is there 
a history of substance abuse that might be impacting them. And can't one feed the other? Absolutely. And then you get down into the relationship factors. And if there's a bad relationship, that might be the reason for the low sexual desire. And then there's the sociocultural stuff, how you grew up thinking about sex, how your family of origin taught you what they taught you about sex, what your culture teaches you about sex. So all of these factors really can impact sexual functioning. So anytime we see a woman, we kind of go through all of these to try to figure out the one or two or eight things that might be contributing to low sexual desire. So when we talk about a drug like flibanserin, flibanserin is for those women who, for no other explanation, have the switch turned off. So we can't look to the uh, the relationship with the partner and say, oh, there's the problem. Um, it is really for the women who have the switch turned off, which is admittedly a small percentage of women who come in complaining of low sexual desire. But nonetheless, this is an important breakthrough and... Um, potentially it, it, on the mar- new drug on the market that we can actually use. In fact, the only drug on the market that will be there for women. I love that you were spent, you spent some time listening in on the FDA discussion over this, and you said it was very passionate, and there was a lot of heated discussion on it. And why is that? I don't, I don't know. It's kind of mind-boggling to me how, how passionate both sides are. I can tell you that I'm passionate about having a drug available because there haven't really been any options to offer women. Um, we have lots of things to offer in terms of talk therapy and treating vaginal dryness and getting rid of pain, but in terms of how do you turn the switch back on, we don't have anything that will impact that. And so, again, this is a drug that would be appropriate for a small group of women, but boy, to have that available, and you know what else this is going to do. This is going to open up the pipeline, the pharmaceutical pipeline, for all the other drugs that are back there waiting, because they're waiting to see what happens with this drug before they go ahead and push anything through. They want to know if the FDA is open to considering more drugs in this category. And from what I understand, the side effects are not that dangerous. Then certainly there's no four-hour erection problem that you hear with the Viagra or the Cialis ones. So what yeah, are the side effects? vision yeah. going, yeah, et cetera. What are the side effects? Um, yeah, so the side effects, that there are concerns regarding safety uh, that have been brought up in front of the FDA, and I think uh, Sprout still has to address some of those, and they're still thinking about what kind of warnings might be put on the packaging. Um, but the side effects are um, uh, dizziness, uh, nausea and fatigue, which are very vague symptoms, and those are fairly common with a large number of medications out there. And this is a drug that um, is in the category, same category as some of the other antidepressants, although this works a little bit differently on some of the brain chemicals. But think how many side effects are associated with antidepressants. Mm-hmm. There are many, many side effects associated with them. So I don't think this is dramatically different from any of the other medications that we see on the market. Do you think there's pretty good evidence out there that this actually works? I mean, has it been tested in enough of women whose sexual desire has improved that, that you think there's, that it's worthwhile? Well, this has been tested in about 11,000 women, so it's not a small group of women that it's been tested in. It's been tested in many more women that, than some of the PDE5 inhibitors were tested in in men. So, um, yes, the things that they measured in terms of effectiveness, they measured three things. One was the number of sexually satisfying events. 
which may or may not be an appropriate measure for women. So the number of times we have sex per month doesn't really tell you how we felt about having sex those three times or whether we experienced spontaneous sex drive at other times that didn't result in a sexual event. Did so they call those SSEs? They called them SSEs. That was, that <laughs> wow. was one. Satisfying wow, <laughs> Tom, I'm impressed. Um, the second measure that they looked at was uh, a validated score called the Female Sexual Function Index that looked at how women felt about their sex drive. And the third was a distress scale, so how bothered were they by this problem? And so those might be a little bit more accurate in terms of looking at how women believe this helps. So actually all of these measures improved on the drug. The number of sexually satisfying events went from somewhere between two and three per month up by one additional event, which the criticism was that, well, that's not very significant. But when you look about, uh, you look at really these women want to experience a sex drive, and if they are, again, it doesn't necessarily mean they have to have a, an event to have that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also reported improved desire and less distress. Yeah, so it sounds like you're in favor of this. And Definitely. how many women, uh, looking back uh, in retrospect, let's say this past uh, 12 months, would you do you think you might have given this drug to? A small handful. Really? So not that many. So but the condition is 10. real. Huh? Ten? Oh, yes. The condition is real, but many times there are other factors playing in. For instance, uh, women who have pain with sex. They don't have a sex drive because it hurts every time they have sex. So why would you want to have sex if it's painful? Or women who have a bad relationship with their partner. Again, if you don't like your partner very much, why would you want to have sex? So there are so many other reasons why low sexual desire may be impacting women, aside from just the switch being turned off. Well, we've been talking about that low sex desire, HSDD, and the new drug designed to treat it with Dr. Stephanie Fabian. When will we get the uh, decision on that? Do you know? Uh, by August, they have to make a decision. All right. Dr. Fabian is the director of the Women's Health Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much, Dr. Fabian. Thank you. I'm Thanks, delighted Stephanie. to be here. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, maintaining a proper diet as a person gets older can be a challenge. We'll hear from a Mayo Clinic geriatrician about detecting and preventing malnutrition in older adults. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The 12 Habits of Highly Healthy People are activities you can incorporate into your daily life to help achieve a healthier, happier you. Developed by the staff of Mayo Clinic's Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center, the 12 Habits include a spectrum of activities that contribute to physical, nutritional, mental, and spiritual health. Here to talk about habit number seven, strength and flexibility, is Mayo Clinic sports medicine specialist, Dr. Ed Laskowski. Well, strength training and flexibility are important to our overall health because we change as we age. We lose uh, strength as we age, and it's important to regain that strength over time with strength training exercise. The nice thing is it's never too late to start, and strengthening can be done at any age. Strength and flexibility is habit number seven in the 12 Habits of Highly Healthy People. We'll be featuring more habits in upcoming programs here on Mayo Clinic Radio. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine. And I'm Tracy McRae. Good nutrition, that is getting enough of the right kinds of foods to stay healthy. It's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? Amen. Five fruits and vegetables today. I try as hard as I can. <laughs> Doesn't matter what your age, but you know, for older adults, sometimes because of illness, sometimes because of they don't have an appetite, good nutrition may be especially difficult. Here to talk about older adults and nutrition is Dr. Paul Takahashi. Dr. Takahashi specializes in general internal medicine and geriatrics at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Takahashi. Thanks, Tracy, Tom. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Takahashi. Always good to have you on the program. So let's talk about nutrition, Mm -hmm. Uh, mainly with regard to older individuals. You deal with them day in and day out. So what do you look for if you that might be a sign or a symptom that uh, there are nutritional issues for that patient? Uh, that's a good question, Tom. And nutrition is really a big topic. So when anybody comes in the office, everybody gets weighed. So I think that's the first thing we look at. And mm-hmm. I talk with people pretty routinely about what am I really uh, focusing on today, and that is to making sure your weight is staying stable. The challenging issue, Tom, is for many, many years, for most of people's lives, we tell people if you lose weight, that's great. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's, that's always a big push and saying, oh, I'm just so happy I'm losing weight. And as a geriatrician, I take care of older adults. That can oftentimes mean a, a sign or a marker for something going very wrong. Such as? Um, it could be um, people are starting to have memory loss would be one possibility. An adverse reaction to one of the medications. Uh-huh. Uh, bad illness, uh, heart disease, cancer. Those types of issues could also be a problem as well. So if somebody recognizes they're losing weight, their clothes are getting more loose, or you have a family member who you think is losing weight, definitely make sure they get them in to see somebody to make to kind of find out what's going on with this weight loss. If I'm to believe uh, what I see in the magazines and on television, all you have to do when you get to be, I don't know, Dr. Shive's age, <laughs> is start drinking some of those supplements that come in bottles, some insurer, have my insurer every day. What, where does that fit into this? Um, usually that's kind of the last, that's the last step. I mean, you know, Sorry people, about that, Dr. Shives. I had to throw you under I'm the bus. I'm on, on the last step. <laughs> so it's a... Uh, the, the, the supplements are a great option for people who really have problems with their, their appetite and they just, they just, there's nothing there. They have a lot of problems preparing meals. Oftentimes these are people that maybe have some dementia, memory loss and saying, can you at least make sure mom gets a, a shake in every day? That's about 280, 300 calories. It's pretty good, but you really need to have at least a couple of those a day. My preference is for regular meals. And I think that's, you know, we're, we're designed to eat regular food. Fruits, vegetables, protein in particular is going to be really important. And um, when people stop eating and they lose weight, that's when danger things start to happen. Mm. People start getting weak. They start losing their balance. They start um, falling, breaking bones. That's a really big challenge. And I, I, when I talk to people about this. That's the number one thing I'm looking for in people who have dementia or memory loss is how their weight's doing. So in most doctors' offices, if you uh, go in to see them and you've lost weight, everybody's happy. But in your office, no, no, you not want, at all. No. And that's why that's like I'm trying. And I educate people Where every day, there? and they say, and then you would try to say, well, please don't go on diets, and please be very careful. With, you know, restrictive issues. I know that for some people with major illnesses like heart disease and high blood pressure, you have to be a little cautious with that. But in general, if you're losing weight, and we don't have a good reason for that. That, that needs, an, needs attention, both to treat it as well as to find out why people are losing weight. Is loss of appetite sometimes related to depression, or it, is it more related to dementia, or both? Or both, both, or medications, one of the, any of the above. Um, or just oftentimes as people get older, their taste buds change, smell changes. People just lose the, you know, the, the, the appetite urge. 
but depression certainly on that list, Tom. And I and we routinely ask about that. How is your how are your mood, spirits? Are you losing interest in things? Uh, the cognitive loss and memory loss certainly is a big part too, and we check for those things. So these are things that require a little bit of time to kind of go through and figure out why exactly people are losing that weight. A lot of the enjoyment we get out of eating is because of our sense of smell, right? Absolutely. And, and if you lose that, then things just don't taste you, you, as good. Exactly. And a lot of neurologic illnesses like Parkinson's disease and dementia, Alzheimer's disease, that's a natural part of people losing their sense of smell. So that's that's kind of, again, another tip that something is going on that we need to look into. You mentioned that uh, as people are coming into the office to see you, and this is how you can keep tabs on them, let's flip it around and talk about our second topic here, which is you going to see them and house calls. Absolutely. And I think that that's something... You make house calls? We do. This is a new new trend. What's old is new again. Just you guys, right? Well, well, and I think think increasingly... it's wonderful. And I think what's going to happen is... uh, is we're all this, the medical profession is trying to we're changing we're going to more of a value-based uh, system uh, people are going to see less and less time in the hospital less and less time in the nursing home and people will be coming out to your home uh, particularly after you are, if you're hospitalized or you're acutely ill i think people are going to start to see the old-fashioned house call come back within uh, olmstead county and rochester we're doing that now we have uh, providers going out talking to people in their homes or their assisted livings or senior housing and talking with them about how their health is doing doing an assessment right on the, right on the spot and that's awesome because you are then going out and seeing their living space and you Absolutely. can pick up clues do they have possible hazards in their homes that might trip them or is the stove piled over with mail so that you know that they're not cooking something or Absolutely. you can pick up lots of keys. Absolutely. And we take a look and see how they're, what they're, what's in the fridge, sure. uh, what's how their medications are doing, if it's just a big pile or if it's very neatly done. And for a lot of people, particularly right after you're, you're sick and in the hospital, it's very difficult to come into a hospital, to come into a, a, an office visit. It's very convenient to have someone go out to them and say, hey, let's evaluate you here, look in your home space, talk about some other things beyond medicine. Community resources, um, what's happening in terms of your caregiving situation, things like that, which don't oftentimes come up in the office, but sometimes a little easier at home. Say, boy, you're having you're having some problem with mm-hmm. this mail, or you're having, mm-hmm. are you, how are you doing with your bills? You need some, you need a senior advocate to help you out. Uh, word has it too that uh, sometimes a pharmacist will actually go out and visit a patient. Absolutely, and uh, that's part of the new change that happened with some of the re- recent regulation changes. That pharmacists are now a part of this, and mm-hmm. so getting a medication review with a pharmacist, making sure they talk with you about whether what you're taking, how you're taking your medications, if there are interactions with your medicines, I think has really been a nice a nice addition to people's care. If and, people are listening and thinking, man, that sounds like something I might want to. In, investigate a little bit more. How could they find out if a home visit could be part of their medical care? Um, usually you would c- you communicate with your provider and say, well, is this something that, that we provide or when do you provide it? Uh, oftentimes people are in the hospital. That's usually when these things come up. And they say, well, I've, you know, I've had a pneumonia. I'm going to be going home. And then don't be surprised if the hospital team says, well, we may have a nurse come to visit with you in two days after you get out to review your medicines, to make sure you're getting up and getting around and talking with you how you're doing at home. Thanks for the update on nutritional needs of the older individual and also the fact that you make house calls. Okay. Dr. Paul Takahashi specializes in geriatrics and internal medicine at Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Takahashi. Thank you. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. 
Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.